This is the Israel Connection coming to you on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming over the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. In the second half of today's show, I'll be speaking live with Lieutenant Colonel Reserves Maurice Hirsch, who is the Director of the Initiative for Palestinian Authority, Accountability and Reform at the Jerusalem Centre for Public Affairs and the former Director of the Military Prosecution for Judea and Samaria. To begin with today, I'll be speaking with Rabbi James Kennard, the principal of Melbourne's largest Jewish school, Mount Scopus Memorial College, about the very questionable move by school students who have been sucked into supporting the Palestinian cause to take time off from school to rally on our streets. I have the great pleasure of speaking to Rabbi James Kennard on the Israel Connection, and we're about to speak about the pro-Palestinian school student rallies that are going to be taking place, I think, in Melbourne and Sydney. I'm not sure whether they'll be uh, further afield than that. In an editorial in The Australian, if I can just mention this before we uh, I'll let you speak, Rabbi Kennard, it stated that instead of wasting time at the school strike for Palestine in Melbourne on Thursday, students should be in class for a few good lessons on World War II and the diary of Anne Frank would equip them to better understand the war in Gaza. You've been reported as expressing dismay over what's going to happen. What bothers you so much about these protests? Good afternoon. The first thing to say uh, on a simple level, and I speak as a school principal, is during school time, the place for students to be is in school. Uh, it is quite inappropriate for students to declare that they're not going to go to school really for any reason. Putting that aside, I have a particular concern, and I know this is shared by many, many members of the Jewish community, of what the nature of this rally for Palestine might be and how it will impact on young uh, perhaps naive, unworldly young people. We have seen that the pro-Palestinian rallies that have taken place in Melbourne and Sydney very quickly spill over to explicit anti-Semitism, and one can debate about the implicit anti-Semitism in the cries of from the river to the sea and so on. But when people call out gas the Jews, it's pretty clear what they mean. That needs no explanation or translation. At the very best, one can say that these rallies present a totally one-sided, simplistic view of a complicated situation in the Middle East. But given all this, it is very likely that young people who are encouraged or feel it's an appropriate thing to do, or it's a, it's a clever or trendy thing to do, to go on such rallies, will come back with a very mistaken opinion, will come back with negative feelings towards Israel, towards Zionists, and in particular towards Jews themselves. And then I worry about the community cohesion, when you have a lot of young minds poisoned in this way, and I worry about the cohesion within individual schools. I worry what it's like for the Jewish students the day after on a Friday morning to turn up to school, knowing and fearing that their classmates have been at a rally where they've heard very explicit anti-Semitic content. Uh, and that is why many people are very concerned. Um, I noticed that some schools are clearly discouraging their students from attending, but I fear there are other schools and there are other teachers who feel that in the name of free speech, in the name of liberalism, or even in the name of anti-Zionism, which they think to be a an appropriate cause to, to a trumpet, um, other schools might even be um, permitting, um, taking a neutral stand, or even encouraging their students to attend. Uh, and that possibility I find very frightening indeed. 
What do you have to say about uh, our uh, leadership? Uh, I would refer to uh, comments that were made by the Shadow Education Minister, Sarah Henderson, about uh, what Victoria's Premier, Jacinda Allen, said uh, about these protests. Uh, she didn't really uh, uh, condemn them in, in any strong terms. She simply said that uh, the students had a democratic right to go to these protests Sarah Henderson contests or contends by the way she spoke. It's a breach of a duty of care to, uh, well, to I, students I, in, the, in the state of Victoria. I, I'm a rabbi, I'm a school principal. I don't want to get into partisan politics. I think there has been a lot of support for the Jewish community from both sides of parliament, in the state parliament and also in the federal parliament. Um, I noted what uh, Senator Henderson had to say. I noticed what the Premier in Victoria, Jacinta Allen, had to say. I will say that I think the, the condemnation, the negativity towards the march could have been a bit more full-throated from the Premier. Um, but I don't think it's fair to say that she was supporting it. I don't think it's fair to say she was taking a neutral stance. Um, I understand her hands are a little bit tied. There is a concept of free speech. People do have the right to protest. Uh, and I think that's something that we're proud of and thankful for in Australia. And I don't know if there's any legal mechanism which a the state government could indeed ban the march. Um, what, what we would look for to our political leaders is to tell schools, to tell principals, to tell students that this is not a sensible thing to do, this is not a helpful thing to do, this is not the right thing to do. And I think the Premier has said that. Maybe she could be a little bit stronger in her message. Wouldn't there be circumstances, though, where uh, there, there would be stronger views expressed about uh, what uh, students might be, be trying to do? Speak about uh, a right for... Uh, for people to, to protest and even uh, younger people to protest, but aren't uh, children in a, in a particularly different type of situation where they really don't have the, the wherewithal to uh, to protest on, on, on some issues which uh, people need to be uh, uh, more uh, mentally developed to, uh, to really go out and say something that makes sense? Well, what I'm saying is um, I, I agree that it's totally wrong for students to go to such a one-sided a distorted view of history and of current affairs and to get a very incorrect message and a message that clearly borders on anti-Semitism. However, what I'm also saying, and I, I'm not a constitutional lawyer here, I'm not a, a, an expert in the legal situation of marches and rallies, but to my knowledge, it's not possible to say, it's not legal to say that this rally can't take place or it can only take place with people over 18. I don't think there's a mechanism for stopping um, a rally taking place even for children. I think we can all agree, and I'm absolutely of this opinion, but it's a very, very bad idea with very negative potential consequences. But that's not the same as saying that it should be banned or it could be banned. I'm, I'm simply not aware of a legal mechanism to do that. But again, people who have better knowledge of the law might know much more than me. What do you think the students who attend these rallies are going to be chanting when they're on the rallies because they don't just walk there in, in silence. What what words do you think we're going to hear coming from them? Well, I, I can speculate, but on the basis of what we've seen so far, um, I think we'll hear free, free Palestine, and I think we'll hear from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Now, those who are chanting that, particularly the, the latter chant, they may be naive, they may be ignorant, they may be very simplistic, and they think it sounds like a good idea. People being free, who's going to object to that? Of course, we know that from the river to the sea means the, the annihilation of the state of Israel. The only question in this theoretical scenario is what happens to the Jews? Are they absorbed into a basically an Arab state? 
are they left at the mercy of their of the other people in in this one state and we see what happens when jews are left at the mercy of hamas murderers or are they um to be exiled to somewhere else i mean i don't think people really are thinking on this level but what concerns me is the people who know full well that that chant means the end of israel the end of a sovereign state the end of the one only jewish state in the world and yet they still chant it so people going on this march and people going on other marches whether they're young or old or old may be unwittingly calling for the destruction of the state of israel or wittingly either of those are very concerning yeah that's that's for sure the, the child and adolescent psychologist uh, michael carr greg has also slammed the upcoming strikes urging parents to intervene and stop their children from attending Quoting what he had to say, young people shouldn't be missing out on their education. There's too much lost school time. If they want to protest something, they should do that outside of school hours. Furthermore, he said, young people's brains are not fully developed yet. It is the job of the parent to be the frontal cortex. Parents need to learn to say no, and that is that it isn't appropriate. They should tell their children, turn up to school. Don't rob yourself of the opportunity to get a great quality education, he said. You would concur with uh, the remarks of uh, Michael Carr Gregg, I expect. Absolutely. Well, I've got great respect. I think we all have for Michael Carr Gregg and his expertise and his insights um, into adolescent development. And I totally agree that it's it's absolutely wrong for people to be out of school during school hours. That's the first thing. Uh, and the second thing is to uh, for them to learn their current affairs um, from a very bad source of information and a very dangerous source of information. Uh, and I agree, uh, this is a battle that uh, all schools have, I'm afraid, that parents need to be able to say no. And I know as a parent myself, that's not always easy. But to for parents to remind students that their place during school hours is in school. I mean, I'd, I'd like to say something about the word strike. It's it's a evocative and emotive word, and it's borrowed from a very different situation where a uh, employee feels that they need to lay down their labor in order to achieve a, a better working environment and they're prepared to sacrifice their earnings during a period of a strike that's something for which i think many people might have great respect for school students what's being proposed is they sacrifice being in school for the afternoon in other words have the afternoon off school there's no sacrifice in there um and there's no noble cause that they're uh, making such a sacrifice for they're just taking the afternoon off school uh, and i think it's uh, it's very hard to find any sub, uh, basis for encouraging them to do so uh, school kids should be in school during school hours if they want to do other things that's what they have out of school hours for but during school hours their place is in school now, you'd be aware, no doubt, that uh, there have been also rallies uh, concerning climate change. And I'm sure that amongst your uh, student population, there would be some that would also be very sympathetic to the concerns over climate change. How would you feel if uh, students took time off school from Mount Scopus to attend a protest such as that? I, I would say, um, well, the first half of my argument about the school strike for Palestine will be exactly the same, that as much as we might sympathize with the cause in this case, students should be in school. And their best contribution to building a better future is for them to equip themselves with knowledge and skills and understanding in order for them to play their part in a better future, not for them to absent themselves from school. 
Uh, and that's the position that we've taken um, with the climate change last week and, and in previous times. And, and in that respect, these two issues are the same in that I come back to this simple, straightforward point. During school hours, school children should be in school. That's the best way that they can equip themselves to create a better future for themselves and for everybody else. Do you know uh, who is behind the organisation of these protests that are taking place uh, in Melbourne and Sydney, uh, as far as I'm aware? Um, I believe it's an organisation called the Free Palestine Movement, and there's a branch in, in Victoria and a branch in New South Wales. Um, that's my understanding. I, I don't know anything about this organisation. Do you think that they're being uh, very uh, opportunistic? I see that this um, ties in with uh, a kind of philosophy they have of intersectionality where they uh, bring in together people from uh, all flocks of life uh, behind a, a single cause. Yes. Uh, I, I think part of the, the message of many groups today, as various parts of the political spectrum, is, as you say, this idea of intersectionality, that uh, which implies, first of all, that everyone is either a an oppressor or an oppressed. And secondly, that uh, if you're an oppressed in one scenario, then you're oppressed automatically in another scenario. And that is why every different cause should be united together. But what's interesting about this intersectionality is it seems to all boil down to, at the end of the day, we have to fight the Jews. Um, every cause is related to the Palestine issue, and the Palestine issue is about the fault of the Jews and the evil of the Jews. That's what we have to demonstrate against, and that's what we have to ally ourselves with other groups to demonstrate against. It all comes down to what the terrible things that allegedly Israel is doing in the Middle East. And yes, it is a op opportunistic, of course, to say that please ally your cause to my cause, and um, anyone who's uh, not Jewish must object to Jews and their handling of the Middle East situation. So yes, very opportunistic and, and very dangerous. There's a big role that uh, social media is playing in all of this. Uh, there would be much um, pressure on students from their fellow students who, who are attending to uh, also uh, participate. So social media is playing a very significant role uh, in all of this. Well, I think, first of all, there's a natural uh, desire for young people to do what other young people are doing. All people have that desire, to be honest. But you're right. We're now in an age very much where information is supplied by social media. It is not vetted. It is not er edited. It is not contextualized. It is simplified. Uh, it is reduced to slogans and to pictures and to memes. And the uh, I think this is very much part of the media war that Israel is having to fight. This very simplistic set of notions that are being conveyed by social media create a very distorted, very one-sided, very inaccurate picture of actually what's going on in the Middle East. For people, particularly young people, for whom social media is literally their primary source of news, they're going to get this very distorted picture, they're going to get this very simplistic view, and they're going to feel that based on what they're learning through their social media feeds is that one side is totally guilty, one side is totally innocent, and therefore we must protest against the oppressor. So yes, I think uh, the the mechanism of social media that uh, conveys and simplifies, uh, simplifies to the point of gross distortion um, about um, news and uh, political activity is is very much part of the uh, the situation here, which makes it much harder for Israel. It also makes it much harder for educators to convey a much more balanced, a much more accurate picture to these young people. Now, I'd point out at this stage that I've uh, attempted on social media to contact uh, school students for Palestine. They've got a presence on Instagram. The problem I find uh, is that uh, when I try and make some contact or engagement with um, people that uh, I may not be agreeing with, 
uh, like like this group that they just don't respond. As I've said to them, uh, they, they seem to be keen to go out in the streets and scream slogans, but uh, when it comes to real uh, proper engagement, rational engagement, they, they avoid it like the plague. Well, social media, unfortunately, is not a appropriate forum for what you call rational debate and discussion. When the internet started, and I remember when it did, there was great hopes for mankind that we'd be able to sit in our own living rooms and engage in wonderful Socratic debate with other people and society would benefit as a result. What we see instead is that on social media, one either cheers the opinions that one agrees with or one insults the opinions that one does not agree with. And uh, people talk about echo chambers where people just hear uh, echoes of their own views and they get more reinforced in their own views. And mankind's ability to share ideas and to evolve better ideas is thereby limited. Again, as an educator, as somebody responsible for educating the next generation, I find this very sad and very concerning. And, and what we're seeing is, for instance, these very simplistic notions about what's going on in the Middle East, and a search for someone to bash, somebody to object to, somebody to shout about. And that often turns out to be people who support Israel, people who live in Israel, and Jewish people. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. I want to shift the focus slightly, Rabbi. You wrote in The Australian a few weeks ago, a piece uh, titled The Four Circles That Allow Evil Against Jews to Flourish. And I, I want you to elaborate for us, please, what are the four circles to which you are referring? Well, I wrote that um, two weeks into the current war. It seemed permanent then. I think it seems even much more permanent today uh, because I think the situation has got even more out of hand in terms of um, allowing evil to flourish. And the evil, obviously, I was referring to was the terrible atrocities of October the 7th. And there's a famous quote attributed to Edmund Burke, probably incorrectly, to say that all that's necessary for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing. And I said it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I identified after the perpetrators of the evil themselves, three more, if you like, concentric circles. So um, after the people who carry out the atrocity, then you have those who support and who cheer them on. And we have seen, particularly in American campuses, but in many other places as well, people coming out and saying, good on you, mate, um, that we support what Hamas did. We think they were entitled to do it because they were resistance fighters and Israel was the occupier, uh, even though Israel hasn't occupied Gaza since 2005. But so the first circle is the people who actually encourage and support and cheer for the evil to happen. Uh, the second circle is people who will say, no, I'm not supporting massacres, I'm not supporting murders, but I understand how they happen. Um, as the UN General Secretary said, that the October the 7th didn't happen in a vacuum. In other words, we can understand that it was a response to conditions, which leads to people saying, without necessarily using these words, it's not so bad, it's understandable. And then the third, sorry, the fourth circle, uh, we've got the perpetrators, we've got the supporters, we've got the justifiers. Then you have the ones who want to remain neutral, who say it's too complicated to get involved. Um, of course, it's not complicated. Killing babies is wrong. There's nothing complicated about that as well. Raping women is wrong. There's nothing complicated about that. But what I noticed after October the 7th was the presence um, around the world and in Australia of all these three groups. There were people who were supporting, there were people who were saying, of course I don't support, but at least I understand, I contextualize, I, I in a sense justify. And then lots and lots of people who would have been very quick to condemn other types of atrocities 
in Australia or anywhere else in the world. On this occasion, they said, no, we want to remain neutral. We don't want to upset people. We don't want to upset this community or that community. And besides, it's a complicated situation. So we'll just do nothing. And those are the good people who do nothing. So it's the combination of the perpetrators, the supporters, the justifiers, and the ones who look the other way. And I said, it helped me understand um, an environment in which the Holocaust could have happened, the, the rise of Nazism and the horrors that they inflicted on the Jewish people and on the world were also supported by some and justified by some, and other people turned the other way because they didn't want to see or comment. And that is basically how Nazism was able to flourish, even in this modern so-called civilized world. And we're seeing a similar phenomenon today when it comes to the most horrendous attacks on Israel and on the Jewish people, at least for the last 75 years, if you take out the Holocaust, in fact, for a much longer period than that, because what we saw on, on October the 7th was the worst of pogroms, much, much worse in scale and in brutality than pogroms we've seen in the last thousand years of Jewish history. So we're really talking about a momentously evil and terrible event. And yet, and yet we saw so many people unable to bring themselves to condemn it, unable to say that this is wrong, whatever the context, we recreated an environment in which evil can flourish. And that, that was the thesis of my article. And I, I think it's been very well received. And I, I, I think it provides a, if you like, a, a way of understanding the crazy and terrible situation in which the world finds itself today, where it cannot bring itself to say simply what Hamas did was wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah, I really recommend that uh, the framework that uh, you put out there as a way of understanding uh, what uh, is uh, is facing us. With this conflation business, one of the things that bothers me is that uh, there seems to be a lot of concern in society about racism, but when it comes to anti-Semitism, it's uh, not uh, deemed to be the most significant form of racism. And every time uh, major media outlets are talking about Concerns over racism, they, they bring together anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Do you really think uh, that this is uh, a, a genuine uh, approach or this is really showing a diminishing of the fact that anti-Semitism is, is really primarily out there as, as a major concern as far as racism is concerned? Well, in a word, yes. In, in a few more words. Let, let's be absolutely clear. Racism against all minorities, against all races is wrong. Islamophobia is wrong where people are attacked or condemned for their religious faith and their religious beliefs and their religious activities, all those things are wrong and there can be no doubt about that at all. What is concerning is that anti-Semitism, it seems, cannot be condemned, at least by many people, without also invoking a condemnation of something else, usually Islamophobia. I think if anti-Semitism used to be the racism that dare not speak its name, it now is the racism that cannot speak its name alone. It has to be associated with a condemnation of something else. And that is uh, another example of how Jews are treated differently and how anti-Semitism is treated differently. We can't imagine a scenario where a politician will say, I condemn racism against, for instance, indigenous Australians, and I also feel I have to say I condemn racism against somebody else. Mostly, we recognize racism and we condemn it in absolute terms. And we don't feel the need to qualify that by saying, oh, and also I condemn something else. But as you say, with anti-Semitism, it is different. And it's a function of how Jews are treated differently. And our oppression, our suffering, our victimization doesn't count quite as much as that of other people. Um, if I could just venture a suggestion, I actually think we suffer by using the word anti-Semitism. 
Um, I think it's a word that after 150 years since it was coined by a German anti-Semite um, has perhaps outlived its usefulness. And I think we should talk about racism against Jewish people. I think sometimes that the fact that we use a different word for the racism directed against us, we use the word anti-Semitism, we don't use the word racism. I think perhaps that confuses people. Uh, and I think perhaps we'd be better off focusing on what we're talking about, which is racism against Jewish people. And just like racism against any other ethnic group must be and should be condemned, so racism against Jewish people should be condemned in the same absolute uh, terms without needing to invoke other causes at the same time. But what you, the phenomenon that you talk about, which is very common in our political leadership, is an expression of how Jews somehow are a bit different and racism somehow, sorry, anti-Semitism somehow is not quite as bad as other forms of victimization. And we need to say it might be different. Every racism takes a different manifestation, but racism it is, and it must be condemned. And it must be considered in the same way as other types of racism. Yes, for those people listening uh, who uh, want to look into this uh, matter or the subject or topic we've just been talking about, the uh, comedian David Baddiel made a, an excellent documentary uh, about this called Jews Don't Count that amplifies what we've just been saying. Yes, I'd recommend that book very highly. Uh, it's a good read. It's an easy read. It's a, David Baddiel brings his own branch of humour. But his message on every page of the book is that Jews don't count. At least they don't count in the same way as other peoples and other ethnic groups. And racism against Jews is ignored, it's swept under the carpet, it's contextualised, it's, it's, quote, understood in a way that racism against other people is not. Yeah, and David Baddiel is not uh, really a Zionist either. No, he's not. And he's, he's uh, he proudly calls himself a secular Jew. So there are areas in which we might disagree respectfully and courteously. But his basic message is something I think we can all get behind and very sadly acknowledge that Jews don't count in, in a way that other ethnic minorities do. Rabbi, you're about to leave Australia soon to make Aliyah to Israel. Would you like to reflect a little on uh, your time here in Australia, being the principal of Melbourne's largest Jewish school, Mount Scopus Memorial College, and being also a leading light in our Australian Jewish community? Um, well, I don't know about the leading light bit. I think that's for others to uh, assess. Um, I'll leave that to, to others. Well, that's, it's that's been my assessment. A Okay, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure uh, for my wife and me to live here for, for will be 17 years. Australia is truly the lucky country. And in many ways, the Australian Jewish community is the lucky Jewish community. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of Jewish activity. There's a lot of learning. There's a lot of cultural events. There's a, a great infrastructure to support Jewish life in the Jewish community. It's also been a particular ple pleasure and privilege to lead, I think, one of the greatest schools in the in the world and i say that because i think uh, amongst jewish communities around the world there's a great renown of mount scopus memorial college when i was a child growing up in london i had heard of mount scopus and i had heard of what a, uh, a wonderful school it is and then i came here and found that out for myself uh, and as i say it's been a huge privilege to lead the school to work with a great team of professionals a great team of the lay leadership uh, and to have the pleasure of working with young people every day for 17 years uh, and I will miss it terribly. But I think it is time, I'm approaching the age of 60, it's time to hand over to a new generation. The school has appointed Dan Strait to be the principal and I think that's a wonderful choice and I wish him every success. But it's also the time for my wife and me to realize a dream that we've had for a long, long time, which is to live in Israel. 
most of our children live there. We have lots of grandchildren there, and that's a great pull. But also to fulfill, I think, the highest value of Zionism itself, and to be in the place where Jewish destiny is being forged, to be in the place where we can live a Jewish life to the fullest. So we're, we'll be sad to leave Australia. Well, I'll be sad to leave Mount Scopus. But this is the right time, and this is the time for new challenges and new exciting chapters in our lives, uh, and in particular, to live in the state of Israel, in the land of Israel, and together with the people of Israel. And some people have said to us, given the present situation, are we still going to Israel? And I say, absolutely. Our desire to be in Israel is stronger now than ever before. If things worked out, I'd like to be there today, but we will be there, please God, in a few months, and we'll be ready to start this, as I say, this next chapter. I congratulate you on what you've achieved uh, throughout your career and your contribution that you've made to the Jewish community here in Australia. You've done a great, a great job indeed. Muscle talk to you. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I've just been speaking with Rabbi James Kennard, the principal of Mount Scopus, about the very questionable move by school students who have been sucked into supporting the Palestinian cause to take time off from school to rally on our streets. I would now like to welcome Lieutenant Colonel Reserves Maurice Hirsch, who is the Director of the Initiative for Palestinian Authority, Accountability and Reform in the Jerusalem Centre for Public Affairs, and the former Director of the Military Prosecution for Judea and Samaria. In our discussion today, I'd like to examine how the economy of Gaza has evolved to the present day, paying particular attention to an appalling ABC podcast on the topic, The Economies of Gaza and Israel that was on the program there titled The Money, that accuses Israel of ruining Gaza's economy. So welcome to the Israel Connection, Maurice. Hi, thanks for having me. So Maurice, to begin with, can you explain what happened after the 15th of May 1948 when Britain formally ceded its mandate over Palestine and the State of Israel was formed as regards Gaza? It's impossible to answer the question without looking back just a little bit. Okay. Gaza was given in its entirety to the, the, the state of Israel to the, as the homeland for the Jewish people. Such was the case in 1917 as part of the Balfour Declaration. It was a, a, again affirmed as part of the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 after the, the First World War, again by the mandate for Palestine from the League of Nations. So when we start Israel's War of Independence, we've now been given this open-ended uh, acclaim to the Gaza Strip as part of the Jewish uh, homeland by the international community, and then really tried to change it with the, 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 the petition plan for Palestine, the UN petition plan, 1947-48, um, which was rejected by the Arabs. And so we, what you have then is 1948, um, Israel is meant to assume control of all of these areas, and instead um, Egypt occupies the Gaza Strip. Um, they had no claim uh, uh, whatsoever to the Gaza Strip, um, not uh, historical, not territorial, not sovereignty, nothing whatsoever. Um, they decided that this was, would be their forward base um, from which to continue uh, attacking and trying to, to, to destroy Israel. So that's the start that we have, 1948 to 1967. The Gaza Strip, as is the same case with, uh, with Judea and Samaria, with the West Bank, is controlled by Egypt on the one side and Jordan on the other side. So now, now we're going to actually concentrate uh, on the ABC program, The Money, 
that was hosted by a veteran ABC journalist of 30 years who uh, is steeped in the syndrome of anti-Israel bias that permeates our taxpayer-funded ABC in Australia. The guest being interviewed was a pro-Palestinian shill named Nur Arafer, an economist and fellow at the Carnegie Middle East Centre, which happens to be based in downtown Beirut in Lebanon. You've listened to this extremely one-sided program. What is your overall impression of it, Maurice? It's unbelievable sometimes to, to, to hear the lies and distortions that people can can try and flog to uh, um, uh, an, any audience that's willing to hear um, their uh, propaganda. Um, I listened to the, 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 the podcast and this wonderful woman tries to explain really with miracles and, 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 and magic as to why Israel is responsible for the failed economy of Gaza. There are a few things, if you listen carefully to uh, the, the podcast, there are a few amazing things that never come up in her uh, understanding or in her analysis of the failed economy of Gaza. Firstly, in 15 minutes, over the entire 15-minute interview, she never once mentions the word Hamas. Hamas is an internationally designated terrorist organization, um, UK, US, Australia, um, European Union, Hamas was democratically elected to uh, run the Gaza Strip in 2006. Hamas has run the Gaza Strip since then. And under the Hamas leadership, uh, Hamas is, uh, let's put it into context, we've seen it um, all the way through the, the, the different periods, but really it came to the forefront on the 7th of October. Hamas is a homicidal, genocidal organization whose goal, stated clear open goal, is to destroy Israel. Um, and to murder as many Jews as possible. So this is the organization that controls uh, the Gaza Strip. She mentions it never once. How can you miss the fact that the entire area is controlled by a terrorist organization? She never once mentions the fact that while she describes the Israeli aggression, of course, she never once mentions the fact that during the period of time of 2006 to 2000, even before the current war, to, to October 2023, those terrorists fired 23,000 rockets, missiles, and mortars indiscriminately targeting Israel's uh, civilian population. This is a terrorist organization. How could she not have mentioned that as part of um, her equation? She then talks uh, um, on, on multiple times, multiple references to this word, the blockade of Gaza which she obviously is inferring Israel's restrictions on trade with this hostile territory that is governed by an internationally designated terrorist organization that constantly tries to murders, murder our Israeli civilians. Um, she fails to mention that simple geography. Maybe she just doesn't, isn't aware of simple geography. Gaza is not an, an enclave entirely controlled or within the Israeli territory. It has a border with Egypt. Now, this would be apparently a, um, a major news update, breaking news for uh, um, Nur Arafat, because not once in her entire discussion does he ever mention the fact that, well, Israel may not have to deal with the, its hostile enemies, but those hostile enemies could do whatever they want with Egypt. Egypt is a different country. Israel does not control Egypt. Unless, of course, you buy in to the, the fundamental uh, um, racist undertones of her uh, um, discussion and of the ABC interview that, well, obviously the Jews control the whole world. We even control the Egyptian government. 
and the Egyptian border. That is something which is one of these under, fundamentally Jew-hating, anti-Israel uh, um, tropes that are running around the world, which, which she clearly just ignores entirely. She then fails to mention anything to do with the Palestinian Authority. Remember, there's that organization that was set up as part of the Oslo Accords. This is going to be the, the unifying uh, and, and unified representation of the Palestinian people um, and will run the autonomous regions of, of, uh, um, of, of, of the Gaza Strip and Judea and Samaria, the, the, the West Bank, and will be the representative of the Palestinian people. Never once does she mention them. Specifically, never once does she mention that since 2007, when Hamas took members of, of the Fatah party, which is now the head of the, of the Palestinian Authority and has been since it was created, took them, threw them off the tops of, tops of buildings, executed them in the street, and then expelled the others from the Gaza Strip. This party has been trying to a, reconciliate with Hamas for the last uh, um, uh, 18 years. But not only that, this same organization, and you can read about it in UN reports. You don't have to trust me. You don't have to listen only to what Maurice is saying. This organization, the Palestinian Authority, led by Mahmoud Abbas, has been penalizing the Gaza Strip, has been penalizing its own people because they do not agree to join in to the PLO and to be under this one guided leadership of the all-powerful despot Mahmoud Abbas. None of this appeared in any of the analysis of Noor Arafat. Um, she also failed to, uh, uh, to mention that. Well, in 2005, Israel entirely pulled out of the, out, out of the Gaza Strip. This could have been, uh, for the last 16, 18 years, the, 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 the Gazans could have be, built the, the, the Singapore of the Middle East. Imagine this area where you have the, 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 the massive Sands Palm Hotel sitting, looking out into the Mediterranean. This could have been an, an oasis of development, of, uh, uh, of progress. Instead, what did the terrorists do? They dug 500 kilometers of tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip, which they themselves described, Musa Abu Marzouk in a recent, one of the Hamas leaders in a recent uh, interview said, well, he was asked, well, why don't you let the Gazan civilians hide and take refuge in the tunnels under the Gaza Strip? He looked the interviewer straight in the eye and said, well, those tunnels are there for us, for the resistance, for Hamas, the terrorists, to keep on fighting. 75% of Gazan population are refugees, so they're the problem of the international community. So when you look at the analysis of Nur Arafah, you see very, very clear uh, um, uh, lines. One, Israel is responsible for everything. Two, the Jews control the world. Three, the terrorists in Gaza are not to be mentioned at all costs. They have no responsibility for the situation. They are just another part of these innocent victims of the evil Jews. That was Nur Arafah's uh, um, message to ABC. Un uh, um, uncontested message, I have to say. Um, the interviewer clearly doesn't know either history, geography or basic facts. Yes, uh, you're spot on with uh, with all of that, Maurice. Uh, when you mentioned the uh, the tunnels, of course, that has involved uh, enormous uh, expenditure. And uh, besides expenditure on tunnels, there's been uh, 
money spent on weapons. Now, this money has come from from somewhere. It's come from uh, donors. I understand that there's been a decline in aid to Gaza between twenty uh, between two thousand eight and two thousand and twenty two, which was two billion dollars in twenty two thousand and eight or twenty seven percent of the GDP to now around five hundred million, which is less than three percent of GDP. So there seems to be uh, uh, a, a certain uh, lack of uh, willingness amongst the supporters of uh, Gaza and Hamas to be donating money and to seeing it all evaporating into uh, places where they really wouldn't want it to go. So uh, what do you make of uh, this uh, incredible waste of billions of dollars of international aid? So, so we have to look at, at, at that question on, on three different levels, uh, uh, with your permission. Firstly, uh, uh, one of the other uh, um, really fundamental uh, um, cornerstones ignored by, uh, by Arafat was the fact that in 2006, when Hamas take, took control, the International Quartet, right, the, the organization for, for uh, leading uh, uh, um, countries, organizations, uh, uh, um, groups, came along to the, to, to the Hamas leadership and said, listen, we don't accept you uh, uh, and, and your uh, um, uh, um, being as a terrorist organization, and we cannot fund you. We are offering you the chance. Deny, denounce terrorism, and we will continue funding them. The Hamas terrorist leadership said, you know what? We aren't interested in your money. We don't want international aid. We want to remain terrorists. So obviously that was a major obstacle and caused a major reduction in the aid of uh, um, the international community to the terrorist organization. And you saw only organizations or countries that identified with that terrorist um, um, orientation continuing to fund um, Hamas and, uh, uh, and, and the terrorists. So, 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 so that's on one level. On the second level, we've seen the same thing with, uh, um, uh, uh, with the international aid that's flown in and, 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 and really flowed into Gaza um, over the last 20 odd years, every cycle of violence, um, there was a renewed uh, um, push to reconstruct Gaza. This means allowing thousands of tons of construction materials into Gaza. Well, on the one hand, the same people who are living in their tents and the refugee camps are still living in refugee camps and tents and their houses haven't been rebuilt. On the other hand, you have seen this really tremendous building spree and subterranean building spree by the terrorists using the international aid in order to forward their own uh, goals and in order to um, forward their and promote their terror capabilities that's what you've seen on, on so on the one level the international community said well let's give you aid just denounce terrorism they said no the aid that they did receive was then used not for the purposes that it was given but rather for the purposes of forwarding um, the terror infrastructure. Now, the third part of this equation is also, and you cannot, and we cannot uh, um, uh, um, overlook it, is the Palestinian Authority. Again, we've had those two situations, Hamas on the one hand, Palestinian Authority on the other hand. The aid, the international aid to the Palestinian Authority also dropped from 2011 to 2021 by 90%. Now, why? Has the Palestinian cause become less of a cause celeb? Has the Palestinian cause been uh, um, neglected by the international community? The answer is no. The answer is no. So how do we explain that drop in aid? 
And the answer is very simple. In 2011, um, clear evidence became available that the Palestinian Authority had adopted a policy entrenched in law by which it spends hundreds of millions of dollars every year to pay rewards to terrorists. Literally, you go, you murder a Jew, you get cash in your bank. Now, imagine that situation anywhere around the world. You're actually paying someone to murder a Jew. I think in every country in the world, that would be unbelievable anti-Semitism. Imagine that type of a law in Australia. The Australian government has a new policy. We're going to pay money, money, cash in your bank account. All you have to do is murder a Jew. How would that go over in society? That is unbelievable. But that exists in the Palestinian Authority. So the world has seen this and hasn't really uh, um, ignored it. And that's caused this massive uh, drop in uh, aid to the Palestinian Authority as well. So, 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 so that is also playing into the same thing. Aid, the international community wants to give the Palestinian aid. All they have to do is, is, is stop murdering Jews. Stop promoting and reward and incentivizing and rewarding the murder of Jews. That this would open every bank account in the world, but they're just not interested. Nur Arafat, zero understanding of that. ABC uh, uh, reporter, zero recognition of that. It's all the Jews' fault. The Jews are responsible for their own murder. That is their opinion. Yes. Uh- Accompanying that uh, podcast, there's a report which uh, provided some impetus for, I think, for the uh, podcast was the report coming out on the economic development of the occupied Palestinian territory for 2022, coming from the UN Conference on Trade and Development, said uh, in, in one summary sentence that conditions in the enclave had been stifled by years of restrictions before October the 7th. So... Uh, I think uh, we see the United Nations also being uh, uh, wildly complicit in uh, this whole affair. Well, unfortunately, the United Nations is probably one of the most anti-Semitic organisations on the face of the uh, on the face of the world on the face of the globe. Um, it's a promotion of this unbelievable narrative of well, Israel is the aggressor, and uh, the Palestinians are just fighting for their right to uh, uh, um, self-determination is part of that whole false narrative that that, 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 that they are that they are pushing constantly that same report um, it really does issue the same ideas over and over again let's ignore the fact that God has to understand and, and and this is a fundamental for your listeners uh, um, to be aware of whilst the world defines Hamas as an international terrorist organization again, Europe, uh, uh, the European Union, Australia, the UK, uh, um, Canada, all, all of the normal civilized countries in the world define Hamas as a terrorist organization. Hamas is not on the UN terror organization list. For, for the UN, Hamas is just the de facto leadership of Gaza. Read that report and, 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 and really your eyes pop out of your head. This is an organization that that, that massacred 1,200, 1,300 people, took 240 hostages, has fired now over 30,000 rockets indiscriminately targeting Israel's civilian population. UN doesn't recognize them as terrorists. 
and, and, and so anything that Israel does to fight terrorism is obviously illegitimate because the other side aren't terrorists. And so that's the context that you have to understand with these with these really fundamentally biased and warped and distorted and depraved, really depraved UN uh, uh, um, reports that ignore the terrorists, whitewash their actions, invent this situation where any type of legitimate war on terrorism is actually an act of unjustified aggression in which the Palestinians are just the victims of the evil Jews. That is, if you can look at any, uh, I, I often tell my children, if you're going to look at a, at, at a Marvel uh, um, or, or really any, any film, what are you going to see? There's someone at the beginning who appears to be a hero. He gets into a, a difficult situation. The evil terrorists uh, win out and then he survives at the end. Well, that's the same theme that you can look at in every single UN uh, um, document and report. The terrorists are poor victims. They are the ones who have the right to slaughter Jews. Any Jewish response, counterterrorism is illegitimate. And therefore, the result is let's vilify the Jews. That's the exact same theme that you can see through every single report of the UN. The, uh, there's no uh, acknowledgement at all in this uh, program, ABC program, of the contribution that Israel has actually made to uh, the welfare of, uh, of Gaza by providing uh, opportunities for workers to um, come into to Israel, uh, by, by ferrying uh, patients who need uh, special medical attention, taking them to Israel, Israeli hospitals, by even uh, trading uh, with, uh, with Gaza. This is all uh, dismissed as being just the actions of a colonial uh, power. And I, I would like to add to this, this uh, remark I've heard from uh, a leading uh, protagonist for the Palestinian cause here in Australia, Nasser Mashni, who's talked about this birth death register that's kept in Tel Aviv, which uh, seems to his mind be uh, showing the uh, colonial domination of the Palestinians. But uh, as you can perhaps tell us now, it doesn't tell us, it doesn't say anything of the sort. It's unbelievable the lies that people try to uh, uh, tell the world and, and, and think that they'll believe it. As I said before, David, in 2005, Israel entirely pulled out of the Gaza Strip. We have nothing to do more uh, with the Gaza Strip. We would happily leave them uh, um, to trade with Egypt, develop their economy. It's all wonderful. So on the one hand, Israel allows uh, the, the, the unemployed Gazans. There's 45% unemployment in Gaza. So Israel is even though it's a hostile territory, allows the Gazans to come into Israel to work. What it now appears is that many of those uh, um, workers who came in actually were acting as spies to gather information on the communities adjacent to uh, um, the, the, the Gaza Strip and, uh, and were actually documenting who lived in them so that they could come and murder them later on, on the one hand. So that's, uh, that's part of the, the story. Israel trying to help the Gazan economy and the Gazan terrorists literally biting off the hand that feeds them. On the other hand, this this whole story about the population registry. Now, you cannot understand how much garbage this is. Like, the idea is Israel is not present in the Gaza Strip. We have nothing to do with the Gaza Strip. We are not uh, active on the ground. There's no boots on the ground. If Ahmed is born in the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza, right? Let's say it's before the, 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 the massacre. 
what responsibility do the Gazan authorities have to report to Israel? None. If they didn't report to Israel, what would happen? Absolutely nothing. There is no population registry that's running Tel Aviv for the Gazans. We can't force, can we force uh, uh, Australia to report to us every child born in Australia? Of course not. And so we can't do that with Gaza. The Gazan authorities choose to report to Israel because if we don't see that person on, on, on a recognized list, then we will not allow that person into Israel to then collect information and gather intelligence to come and destroy us. That annoys the Gazan terrorists. So they, as part of uh, the, the, this wider program of not only uh, um, trying to use and abuse Israel, but then attack Israel as well, that's what these people are saying. A clandestine population registry. This is really the, the fundamental uh, um, uh, uh, underlying anti-Semitism, Jew hatred that says, will the Jews control the world? They even control the population register of Gaza, even though they aren't present there. They have no one on the ground there. They have no way of enforcing it. But still the Jews control the register. That's what this insidious guy is saying, really. And that's what he's trying to persuade people to believe. In the few minutes we have left, let's have a look at uh, what the situation is with Gaza going forward. Is there any way out of, uh, of, of the situation that uh, we're in now with Hamas present in Gaza? There's talk of the Palestinian Authority coming to take over uh, after Hamas is uh, eliminated, as we as we all hope, but the Palestinian Authority is in many ways just as bad and and corrupt as uh, Hamas is. So, uh, what's the prognosis? Uh, would you say, Maurice? So, so you're quite right. The, 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 there's no real difference between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Uh, um, uh, um, they only their only disagreement is on who leads the charge to destroy Israel and who takes uh, uh, credit for murdering more, more, more Jews. Um, that's exactly uh, um, their, their, their position. They say it loudly, they say it clearly, um, but unfortunately the international community just doesn't want to hear them. We, uh, um, we want to hear that they want peace, and so we impose our idea upon them that they want peace. But really that's not the case. They aren't interested in peace. Um, they're only interested in destroying Israel. The Palestinian Authority was handed the keys to Gaza in 2005. They were the ones who allowed Hamas to grow, prosper, and to uh, take control there. They were the ones who insisted that Hamas be allowed to participate in the elections. Um, and so they are definitely part of, um, if not a major part of the problem, um, they are at least a very, very large part of the problem and can be none of the solution. Can what I... has to be done in Gaza is denazification, um, similar to the efforts uh, uh, um, done in Germany after the Second World War. The Palestinians in Gaza have been brainwashed by the Palestinian Authority, by Hamas, into Jew hatred. That has to be reversed. That has to be changed. And only by moving forward in that direction, the denazification of Gaza, will there be any possible uh, hope either for Israel or for and specifically for the Gazan people as long as they continue to be governed by terrorist organizations the Palestinian Authority that seek Israel's demise and 
and as Go as as Goldemir famously said, if the pa if the Arabs love their children more than they hate us, then there would be peace, as long as the Palestinians continue choosing organizations that hate us more than they love their own children, then there won't be peace here. What do you say to the um, criticism of uh, of Israel for having uh, propped up uh, Hamas to be uh, used as leverage against the Palestinian Authority? Nonsense. I, I, I apologize. The, 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 there, there, is, there is only one word for that. Um, to argue that Israel has propped them up is, is simply ridiculous. There have been over... Uh, um, over the last 15, 18 years, this idea of the international community, that Israel is prevented from going into Gaza and destroying Hamas. It happened in 2006 when uh, um, when the terrorists kidnapped Gilad Shalit and we went back in for the first time and the international community said, no, you cannot go any further. It happened again in 2007, 2008 with Operation Cast Lead. Israel went in to destroy uh, Hamas and the international community said, said you cannot. Um, the UN led the charge, the the the, the infamous uh, Goldstone report. Um, it happened again in 2012 with Operation Pillars of Smoke. Israel went in to destroy Hamas. Um, the international community said no. Um, 2014, and I can go on and on and on. Uh, um, the, the argument that Israel supported Hamas is another one of these tropes to say, well, Israel is responsible for the terrorism and it's not the terrorists. It's garbage. It should be seen for what it is. It's anti-Semitism in its most pure and uh, and really elegant form. Yes, my fear is that uh, this fundamentalist Islamist ideology in which Hamas is based, uh, even if Hamas is uh, eliminated as a, an entity in its own right, is going to transmogrify into some other despicable form. Uh, it's, that's that's the, the fear I, I have. I, I appreciate... The time you've given us today, Maurice, on uh, on my program, time has run away from us, but I think uh, you've given us uh, an awful lot uh, to think of and you've provided a fantastic criticism of what uh, our ABC is in the habit of doing so much of the time, uh, especially now during this war uh, with Gaza. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Stay safe. Bye-bye. So I've just been speaking with uh, Lieutenant... Reserves, Lieutenant Colonel Reserves Maurice Hirsch, Director of the Initiative for Palestinian Authority Accountability and Reform in the Jerusalem Centre for Public Affairs and the former Director of the Military Prosecution for Judea and Samaria. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.